Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. And like Charlie said, we're going to focus our attention on Psalm 63 as we walk through the life of David's major episodes. We've been mostly in First and Second Samuel, and we will kind of dance in and out of Second Samuel just a little bit to set the passage up. But Psalm 63 um, is going to be very pivotal for us. It is, that's okay. It is what uh, Derek Kidner, he's a scholar, writes a lot on the Psalms. He says, there are Psalms that have as much committed devotion in it as Psalm 63, but there are none that have more. It's one of those Psalms that really captures that posture before God for us. And so turn back there if you have an ability to do so. If not, we'll put it up on the screen for you. And while you're turning there, I don't know if you have noticed what I have noticed over the last few years, and that is this fascination that our populace has with hydration. Hydration, which has kind of not been around forever, at least the fascination of it has been. I mean, in the early 1990s, exactly zero people were talking about how important it was to stay hydrated. Nobody had a stainless steel water bottle with a proprietary rubber straw and stickers all over it, right? None of this existed. You might have had like a, like a thermos if you were a little kid inside of your lunchbox that matched the lunchbox. But if you carried that thermos outside of lunch hour, you were a dork and everyone was going to let you know about it, how much of a dork you were. Uh, Gatorade was around back then, but just the yellow, lemon lime, that was all we had. Bottled water, when you think about it, some of you are old enough to know this, bottled water wasn't even really a thing in the early 1990s, right? You want to know why? Because it's just it was an innovation that nobody was really asking for, right? You, I mean, if you, I remember the very first time I saw water bottles and I thought, man, that's never going to take off, right? Why would anyone invest in a company that makes water bottles? Because we had water fountains. And if you just kept walking down the hall, there'd be more water fountains. I mean, it, some of you are even older than that, and you, at my age and older, and you probably grew up hydrating yourself off of the water hose spiraled up on the side of the house. Anyone do that? Raise your hand if you drink from the water hose, right? It tasted like garage sale if that was a flavor, didn't it? There was a little bit of art for it. You turn it on just a little bit, get the hot water out, then start drinking from it. And if your buddy was drinking from it, that's when you gas it and really get the water going so you could waterboard them. I mean, it was a thing. Man, it's crazy how the hydration space has exploded today. You can now spend $50 to $60 on a very fancy water bottle, and you can put a high-performing electrolyte in there, bought from a bloated market of competing brands. In other news, did you know that 60% of polled people that carry those hydration bottles around with them, 60% say that they wash it multiple times a day. That means there's a lot of liars in the world. <laughs> there's no way. 60% of you are lying. 10% said they do it once or twice a month. And those are my folks right there. I just give it a good rinse right? Smell it and then move on with my life, right? You don't have to really wash it. <laughs> but we have apps to help us now with our hydration, Vic vibrant discussions on what the perfect pH balance is and BPAs and things like that. I think it's a little bit overanalyzed, right? We're not in a third world country. No one in here has ever died of thirst. You don't know anyone who has ever died of thirst. We, we will say, I'm dying of thirst, in the same way that we say I'm dying for a good cheeseburger or something like that. But we don't really get the level of thirst that the Bible will talk about sometimes. The Bible uses physical language often to describe spiritual realities. And it's helpful for us. And around 100 times, approximately, you will catch the Bible speaking of the soul or of the land being parched. 
dry. He was dehydrated to a certain extent. We see this in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts. What, is it, what does it mean to have your soul thirsty? We don't know, and yet we all know. We intuit what this means. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know, humanity, whether you love Jesus or don't love Jesus, humanity experiences a dryness of the soul. We do. We know what it's like to have a thirsty soul, a soul that is full of deep longing that cannot be quenched, just this pervasive, unrefreshed feeling. So we know what this feels like, but we're survivors, so we also know how to adapt whenever we have a thirsty soul, whenever we feel like we're in barren places, right? We know how to get through this. We just learn to subsist on whatever it is that the world offers us. And the world offers quite a bit that promises that it will quench our soul. Somebody wise once said that you could pretty much sum up the gospel in four words. Paradise lost and then paradise regained. And when we look for things to quench that soul thirst, according to the psalm here, when we look for things that, to do that, we're, we're simply looking to regain paradise. We're looking to bring heaven to earth. So much of our toys and pursuits, just they're surrogates for a deep satisfaction. And sometimes we find something that will quench our thirst. Some aspect to a career, maybe a significant other, a hobby, something. It's a long list. We'll find something that will stop the thirst, but just for a moment, right? And then we get thirstier, and then thirstier, constantly looking for a way to regain paradise. God speaks to us in Jeremiah about this very thing. He says this in Jeremiah too. stay where you're at. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you're unfamiliar with a cistern is, it's a tank that holds water. It's not a well. It's not pulling from the earth or anything like that. It's just holding something that's already been collected. And the only way they can do that was to make it out of things like wood or stone, and they would leak. They would crack, and they would leak. Broken cisterns are used here to describe yours and mine, our efforts to replicate what only a living God can bring to us, right? Refreshment. Refreshment. They leak. Everything we build leaks. And I think what happens, I know what happens for me, maybe it happens for you, is I have a tendency to kind of scan the horizon and see other people who are delighting in the Lord. People who really enjoy Jesus and judge them a little bit. Think that they're just looking extreme, over the top, maybe fake. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen someone that really enjoys the Lord, someone who's really delighting in the Lord, and just thought to yourself, this guy, this gal, we get it. Calm down. You love Jesus. You want us all to know that you love Jesus. We see you. Do you ever have that feeling? You, you see your own state of soul, your own state of the union, and you feel dry and parched, but you think that's probably closer to normal than what the other person is doing, which is usually distorted and extreme. I know I can be guilty of that. And I remember as a young Christian growing in the Lord, actually kind of cracking on a guy, you know, for, for kind of giving off that vibe. And then my mentor saying, hey, Luke, listen, whenever you see someone that you call a zealot, that's just code for they love Jesus more than you, right? And he was right. You know, but we do 
also at the same time suspect that it's more than just their personality is different than ours, or their Enneagram is different than ours. We kind of suspect this more because if you are in Christ, you've also had moments where every fiber of your being was calling out to the Lord, where everything that you saw was Christ and then. So it was like, man, I feel awake, bulletproof, as if Jesus is the most important thing in my universe. We've all felt that if you're in Christ. We've all felt this just not now. Now is different. A little bit more barren, empty, thirsty, parched. Listen, if a thirsty soul describes you today, I want you to consider where it is you carry your appetites, your thirsts and your hungers. Do you build cisterns? How quickly can you spot them in your life? I want to set up the passage today, 2 Samuel 15, and we are still going chronologically in order through David's life. And this is, a, this is an interesting passage because I think it probably catches him in the lowest period, and he's had a few, but I think this probably takes the cake. So I'm going to just read 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 14, and then maybe jump into another one verse. It says this, this is how the Lord approaches this passage, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on, <clears throat> on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then it finishes in verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Here's why this is such a strikingly difficult passage. Absalom is David's son. It's his son. He's trying to steal the kingdom from David. David is fleeing from home. He feels betrayal, probably on a few different levels, because not only is his son pursuing him, let me remind you, this is the second time he's been pursued in the wilderness. The first was by King Saul, now it's by his own flesh and blood. But some of his closest friends were also betraying him in the very same season. So this is just a tragedy all the way around. He can't sleep. He doesn't know who to trust. He cannot see God. And it's in this moment, in this this fleeing moment that he writes Psalm 63 that we just read. That's where that came from. That's where that came from. So I'd like to look at that just for a moment. We're probably going to read a little bit. I'm not going to read all of it. Psalm 63, but I think this is the pivotal passage that's going to help us most today. And it starts off with a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You know, what I love about the Psalms, by the way, is that it's not a collection of factoids built by academics and archived away in some pristine environment. This is just the cry of an afflicted soul. I mean, we get the real guts of what David is feeling here. 
And I think the main idea, if we were to take the passages that we've looked at so far, which is the framing of this psalm and the psalm itself, David is under excruciating pressure, deep betrayal, heavy sadness, and he's earnestly seeking the Lord with every single fiber of his being. I mean, if you were to read this psalm 15, 20 times, which is always a good practice, find, find just one psalm or proverb and just read it over and over and over again, and you will find words pop out. Some words will stand out. And, and the one thing I catch in this is all these words of deep intention and urgency. He's got a clear strategy in this psalm. His thirst is dominating. It's intense. You pick it up quickly. He has one objective, and that is get more of God. That's his objective. Get more God, and he will not settle for less. But I do. I do, and you do. Like so many people, we have learned how to adapt and how to settle, how to build our own cisterns as paradise is lost and we're trying to regain paradise. But this is what crises do. They have a way of reeling us back to a certain degree and forcing us to decide, discern, however you want to say it, on what will make us happy. That's what a crisis does. What will make you happiest? What will bring you the most joy? What will satisfy you in this tragedy? This deep season of hardness. I mentioned last week, now I did it briefly, but how oftentimes what afflictions will do when sent by God is they will sharpen our sensory for the Lord. They will bring us to a place where the, the suffering is of a sort bittersweet. It's bitter in the fact that nobody likes to suffer, right? Unless you're weird. Nobody likes to suffer. Suffering is suffering, and that's why we call it suffering. But there's a sweetness in it too. There's a sweetness whenever you can see the Lord more clearly, more compellingly, closer, tighter, more vibrant, more beautiful. So there are times where I've gone through suffering where I would really like the dark clouds to separate, but at the same time, i got to be honest, I could really get used to this feeling of having Jesus right next to me the whole time. We talked about that a little bit, which is why James, I think, starts off his book by saying, hey, consider it joy when you bump into to trials of different shapes and sizes because it will produce a completeness in you. And he says, lacking nothing, which means satisfied. And we do. We do. We bump into trials, different shapes, flavors. But what they do is they produce something in us where we are utterly satisfied in the Lord. That's what crises will do. I think what's interesting to me about David as we zoom out and look at the whole scope of his story, he is the best version of himself when he's in the wilderness. Have you noticed that? He fumbles the football a little bit once he gets into the palace. That's when he starts making some pretty big league bad decisions. But when he is being pursued, when he is in dry places, he is, it just brings out the best in him. Why? Because his appetites are for God above all things. Above all things, let me try to be helpful for us today. I think a prime indicator of spiritual drought in our lives is when church, I'll use it in quotations, is not so much a people that we go because we're blood-bought and we are with each other and we were with Christ in that moment in order to um, satisfy our appetites. But church becomes this mechanically dry obligation that we just go to. It's just this place that we go I think that's a primary sign that we have a spiritual drought in our life. I mean, when, when you got ready today, did you fix your hopes on meeting God today? Did you, when you got ready, did you think, I am going to get more God today? I want to increase 
and I'm not going to take no for an answer? Or was it just mechanical duty? It's Sunday, which means I get up at a different time, I put on different clothes, my rhythms are a little different, lunch is going to be a little different, everything's just a little different, and this is just what I do on Sunday, right? Listen, my, my most barren seasons in life have been when all of my spiritual rhythms, moments like this, or in a DNA setting, or with my missional community, or when I'm camped out in front of the Word, or when I'm pacing back and forth and praying. My most spiritually barren moments are when those rhythms are mechanical and obligated and without appetite. I'm going through motions, not because I need my thirst quenched, but because the motions have to be gone through, right? Let me just say, without appetite, friend, you will not grow. You will not grow. And every time you see David say something like, I sing for joy, my soul clings to you, you'll be tempted to think, this guy, this guy, he's just got a different personality, that's all. This guy, we get it, David, we get it. You know, one of the leading features of the demographic that we call the Duns, and if you're not familiar with that, it's not been around forever. It's been around primary. It's been around for a while, but we've, we've only discussed it openly for about 10 or 15 years. You have the nuns. This is a category of people, demographic category of people that have kind of grown up without any spiritual affiliation, any church affiliation. Their parents probably didn't go to church. Um, they fit in a, in a specific category, but the Duns are people that have rejected a spiritual family, a church expression. We just call them the Duns, right? And one of the key, one of the unique markers in the Duns, it's not, that, it's, it's not that they're rejecting God. It's the obligated duty and habit just for the sake of habit. That's what's being rejected. They grew up in a church setting where participation was obligatory. They had to go. They had to get into the family car and go through the family rhythm. Mom and dad were probably involved in some sort of a heavy church rhythm set. Sunday was, was church, and church was Sunday, and it was synonymous, and then you leave the house. And I remember when I left the house, and I went to college, I thought, you know what, I cannot find satisfaction in my life right now in the Lord. He can't quench my thirst. You know how I know that? He never did when I was going to church with mom and dad. He wasn't available to me then. He wasn't satisfying to me then. Why would he be satisfying to me now? It's not that duns don't have appetites. It's not that the Duns of Knoxville don't have a soul thirst. They do. They just carry it elsewhere. We are really good at building cisterns, right? You see, our deepest struggle with our own fallen nature is that we do not earnestly seek or thirst for the Lord. That's where this passage confronts us the most. I mean, does this describe your spiritual condition today? Trying to regain paradise? I mean, if so, we have some really good news. One of, one of my favorite things about the gospel is it frees us to honestly admit where we're at. I mean, the gospel pretty much demands that we drop all pretensions, right? It starts with there's no one to impress and there's really nothing to prove. We can finally take the mask off and, and act as God sees us. I love this about the gospel. We can honestly recognize that it might be a true statement in your Bible that God's steadfast love is greater than life, which is what David says in our psalm. Steadfast just meaning unfailing, unquitting, unrelenting love is better than life. We might know that's a true statement and still not believe it for ourselves at the same time. Right? And we're open enough to say that. The gospel says we are free to just say it. 
I want you to notice what David is not asking for in this moment anyway. What he's not asking for is his throne back. (laughs) That's fascinating to me. He's not asking for his family to be fixed. He's not asking for glory and power. He's not even asking for his own life, to be honest with you. And usually when a trial comes, when my Absalom comes into my life and I find myself being betrayed and I find sadness, most of my dialogue with God or with man deals with my problem going away. That's what I honestly want in my wanter the most. When in the wilderness, we are brought to the place of deciding what it is that's going to bring us joy. When in pain, we're provoked to make that decision. Is it going to be the end of this trial or is it going to be the steadfast love of the Lord being more clear, more compelling, more tangible? I think part of the freedom the gospel gives us is if we can voice prayers that sound like, God, I, I don't thirst for you. I don't. I don't. I do know that your love is better than my life itself. I know that, but I don't, I can't get my arms around it. I, I'm not where I want to be, Lord. And I want to be in a place where more of you is better than less of my problem. I'm just not there. Lord, but I know you can change that in my heart. I mean, that's the gospel gives us this freedom. Now, how is it that we gain this thirst of God above all things? That's a really big question. I mean, if you're going to talk about Psalm 63, you have to know the answer to that. How do we gain this thirst of God above all things? The answer might be frustrating for you. Because this is a supernatural thirst that we cannot develop ourselves. It does not come in and of ourselves. God's Spirit will accomplish that revival in your soul just as much as the Holy Spirit will do it in the city. So when we see revival swallow a city, we don't applaud the efforts of the people. We say God is at work. And it's the same thing with a personal revival, right? That's how, it, that's how it comes. And this is how the Spirit does it, by the way. When the Holy Spirit brings that personal mini revival to your heart, he doesn't just come and bring you feels. <laughs> he doesn't just come and say, you know what, he's, he's pretty low. What I'm going to do is just reach into my bag of pixie dust and magically make him feel satisfied. He will walk as one content. He will be happy. That's not how it works. The main role of the Holy Spirit is to point our hearts and our affections to Christ. It's the main role. When he comes to you, and the Holy Spirit will do this through things like spiritual gifts where we see Christ more clearly, Uh, The Holy Spirit will do it as he shows us and illuminates the word. It's been inspired by God's spirit, but it also is illuminated before our eyes. Holy Spirit does it that way. Holy Spirit can just give you a revelation. You're just side thinking as you water the lawn or whatever you do, and you're not really thinking about anything, and then something comes, and it's like the coin dropped. That's, That's the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit does this, his main job, his main goal, his main role is to enlarge your affections for Christ, to aim your heart at Christ. And the larger your view gets of Jesus, the more your appetites grow for Jesus. It's an interest that compounds. One just follows the other that follows the other, especially, especially in excruciating seasons and in barren places. You know, the big idea is that growing our appetite for God is found most deeply in adoring Christ in his life, death, and life for you and me in the gospel. Friends, this is why we hit it from a thousand different directions, with a thousand different passages, with a thousand different words. It's simply because the gospel of God for mankind, through the person of Jesus, who came to live, die, and live again, who sent his spirit to work in us, 
as he builds a better place for us and we'll come back one day to gather his family. This beautiful story is the most stunning motion of God. I mean, we think it's flinging the stars into the ether. We think it's bordering our creation with day and with night. But I'm here to tell you the most stunning motion of God is his gospel story. And so we're going to hit it. I'm really uninterested in anything that is not getting you to the place where you beg for more of God. I think the gospel is the key to that. It helps us by showing us him bigger, our amazement grows, our fascination goes deeper, and we want more, and we want more, and we want more. And I think this passage cracks the door open just a little bit more for us to see Christ a bit more accurately. There's this fascinating passage. I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel. This will be up on the screen, so you don't need to worry about turning there. You can stay where you're at. This is in verse 30. David is fleeing. He's taking whatever ragtag will go with him. And it says this, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It, it sounds like a very pedestrian passage. What's interesting is right here, we have a picture of David in mortal danger, but a thousand years later, Jesus would be going up the same mountain, also in mortal danger. Whenever you read the, what they call the priestly prayer or the high priestly prayer, which is a long-form prayer of Christ in John 17, that's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. So what we have is a picture of two kings. Both kings are anointed. Both are rejected by the people that should have loved them. Both are pursued by betrayers. Both make for the Mount of Olives. Both do not go there alone. Both jeopardize their companions as they go. Both of these kings pour out their soul even to death, as Isaiah says, on the same mountain. Both kings have a profound sense of following the path that God has marked for them. We see a small picture of an afflicted king. But that just points us to a bigger picture of a more deeply afflicted king. The one who came to live, die, and live again for you and me. And as we, we take the picture of the gospel... We have a couple takeaways that this passage offers us. One is that God is always going to work in you to make you more satisfied in himself. Always. He's always going to do this. He's always going to be working in you and me to make us more satisfied in him. Absaloms come and go. Do they not? Have you ever thought about that? How many dry seasons you have left until Jesus comes to get you? How many? Two? Two thousand? A lot. We have a lot. And oftentimes this is the Lord's way of keeping us thirsty and reaching to love him more than the answer to our trials. A lot of times it's God just driving us to the place where you and I can join David by saying, you know what, God's never quitting, never relenting, always present love, it's better than my life. It's better than my next breath. It's better than my next second. That's how valuable God's love for me is. I think this is why Augustine finishes a statement by saying, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. They've got no place to anchor. They've got no place to find peace and satisfaction unless it's in you. This is important for me. There, there is a, I think he's dead now. I'm pretty sure he's dead now. There's an old Scottish pastor named Eric Alexander. 
I'm stealing this from him, although I'm giving him credit, so I'm not officially stealing it. But he always has this way of looking at how our thought processes evolve, and he uses children as an example by saying, if, and if you've had kids that are little, you've, you've already experienced this. Kids will always say, what is this, right? What, what is this? Well, that's a pen, junior. Okay. What is this? Well, that's your foot. Well, what is this? That's money, right? What is this? But as the kids grow, it, it changes from the identity of something was to the function. What does this do? Well, it writes. Well, what does this do? It buys things or it drives across the city. What does this do? But as we get older, it, it actually turns more existential. What do I do? What am, what am I for? What is my identity and function? What am I put here to do? And the answer for you and me is to enjoy God and to enjoy him more, and to have him quench our thirst and to go back thirsty, and to have him quench our thirst and to grow in him, to have our affections enlarged, to have our fascination get deeper over and over. And as we enjoy him in increasing measure, he is more glorified. We think he's more glorified in us when we do things without enjoying him. Like I'm going to go on the mission field and I'm going to suffer and I'm never going to smile, but boy, am I going to suffer, as if that glorifies him. It does not. Not as much as enjoying him, enjoying him. This is why, and we've quoted it ad nauseum, the very first and very beginning of the Westminster Catechism, there is only one chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our best and truest form, by the way. When the glory of God shines through our mortal clay, this is what I want you to see week after week. This is why we start our mission statement with enjoy Jesus Friends, listen, if you're in a season like David, where will you carry your appetite? What is quenching your thirst? How many cracks does that cistern really have? God is always working in us to make us more content in him. That's the maximum joy humanity can actually experience. I think the second and last takeaway is that our appetite grows with eating. Okay, we kind of know that anyway. I mean, calorie restriction kind of shrinks our appetite just physically. But, I mean, have you ever been not really hungry, like been at a party, at a football game, or with some friends or something, and you'd be like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. And then you just grab a chip, right? You just grab a chip, just a potato chip, and then you eat it. And in six minutes and 6,000 calories later, you ate the bowl. It's gone. You didn't even realize how hungry you were until you started eating. <laughs> That's how I feel it is with the Word of God. That's how I feel like it is with the Word of God. Sometimes when I go to the Word of God, I don't earnestly seek. I'm barely seeking. I'm barely seeking. I know where nourishment can be found, but I'm barely there. If you starve your soul from the Word of God, your hunger is going to decrease. But if you feed on the Word of God, your hunger for God will swell. I'm telling you, when I'm aware of how parched I am, I don't always have a lot of appetite, just a little bit of one. And this is why God is okay with this. Right? Psalm 55, or Isaiah 55 rather. We see God say this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And here's the kicker, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is, this is what we imagine. In order to have God come close to us, we can't come empty-handed. We're not allowed to come with no money. We have to purchase that affection with something. 
So what we do is we, we build this, this uh, penitential agreement with God that we will spend X amount of time in the Word or attending a, a service or something like that in hopes that He takes one step closer to us. Lord, if I could just rub two months together without sinning and where I'm reading the Bible every day, then, then, then will you come close to me? What we're doing is we're trying to pay a debt with works. And he's saying, come with no money. That, that's more of a gospel statement, to come with no money. Resist the impulse to pay for grace. Resist the impulse to pay for that favor. Right? His favor comes not because we have been really good, but because he has been so gracious. It's okay to come with no money. I mean, I've had so many prayer moments with the Lord that have ended well, but have started with, I'm bringing nothing to the table right now. It's just my soul is groaning. Here's some broken pieces to some cisterns. I've done a really good job of building that didn't really meet the need I thought it was going to. I've got, I've got a long list of regrets too. That's all I've got, Lord. I'm bringing it to you, my shrunken appetite. And then God gives us a gift. You, you could just thirst just enough to want to change. And then you can trust that he is safe to approach. He is good to give you grace. And then he shows himself. And we see him clearly. And then we thirst more. And then we get more God. And then we thirst more. And there's this relational momentum that's built. But you've got to start somewhere. You need to know it's okay to start small. You need to know it's okay to just take a step. Take a step. Pray a broken prayer. He says this, I remember you in the sanctuary. What, what he's saying in that moment in the psalm, I remember you in the sanctuary, your power and your glory, I remember you. He's looking back into his memory. I remember what I'm here for. This is what I'm here for. It's not just my identity, not just my function, this is my existence. Hebrews 4, it's such a powerful passage. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No penance necessary. No penance necessary. Leave your long list at the door. Resist the impulse to purchase yourself out of debt so that God would look at you and turn his frown into a smile because that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is he looks at you with a smile. He has affection for you. He can't love you less than he did on the day he won you. Listen, we have two places to repent according to Jeremiah in this. Two evils. One for forsaking God and the other for building replacements. I could add a couple that we learn in Psalm 63. We've gotten very good at adapting and building cisterns. And listen, the older we get, the better we get at it. But they always leak, don't they? But maybe we could add in there just to repent from the sin of trying to prove ourselves. Try, trying to be so impressive that God might dare to come close to us if we promise we won't screw up again. I think that requires repentance. Because what it does is it refutes the gospel. And it says, God, your favor towards me via grace, via mercy, not good enough. Your, your, your work on the cross, not sufficient enough. So I have to offer myself on the cross. I have to whoop myself. I have to pay penance. I have a debt to pay. I'm going to do some work in order to get you to love me. Friends, we've got to repent for that. 
And listen, if you've never felt the steadfast love of God to be better than life itself, if you've never felt that, if you've never felt awake to the Lord, you might have grown up religious, but you're very not likely a Christian. Let me be clear when I say that again. Okay? I'll be careful with my words, but I do want to be clear. If you've never felt the steadfast love of God to be better than life, you're probably not a Christian. If you've never felt awake to the Lord, you might have grown up religious, but that might be it. Seeing Christ as the most important thing in your life is necessary to being a Christian. I get it. We have dry seasons. I've had them. I've had more than I can count. And I've had revivals. Just personal ones, it's here, there, some big, some small. Dry places come. But if you've never experienced Christ more than all the cisterns in your life, friend, you're probably still far from Jesus. I I feel like it's the most loving thing I can do to tell you that, right? But Jesus says something very beautiful to us in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Man, you can come with no money, friend. You could come and buy with no money. 